0: So I confess, it's almost embarrassing to confess this, but in this age of cynicism and an age that wants to be skeptical and feels a little bit and in, in distrust those who are overly, unrealistically optimistic, I confess that I have binged on Hallmark Christmas movies. I'm, I'm, I know, I can't believe I just said that out loud. No, last weekend, for some strange reason, I've never watched them hardly ever in my life, but it just kind of something came up, and I started getting into it, and I think it was three movies later that I stopped watching them. And it begs the question, what was going on? Am I really that sad? Am I really that needy? Um, I don't know. I just think I enjoyed feeling good. And, uh, which is absolutely not the way that I should be starting this sermon. Honestly, it isn't. That's why I say it. it. It's hard to hear a contrarian narrative, especially contrarian to our cultural desires and expectations, contrarian perhaps to how we have neatly packaged even a thing like Christmas. And I love Christmas. So much about it I love. So this is not a, a downy audio or whatever you want to call it. But, but it's true that, that we're, we're, we're working through these songs. We, talk them, we call them the Songs of the Christ. Songs particularly in the Psalms, the book of Psalms, uh, mostly Davidic. And many of which are explicitly quoted in the New Testament uh, or referenced in the New Testament concerning Jesus Christ. And so we've chosen some of those songs. And one of the songs is Psalm two well Psalm two has a might I say troubling narrative uh, regarding a particularly the birth of the Christ you see nothing probably epitomizes the domestication of Christ's birth more than well now the familiar traditional nativity scene I mean, who and what do you see when you see the nativity in your mind's eye? I'm sure you can see it now. There's Mary coddling a baby, Jesus. There's Joseph. There's animals. Kids, help me out. What are the animals? I can't remember. Is there a donkey in there usually or cows, sheep, particularly sheep? Yeah, you got to have some sheep. So you got some animals. Um, You have wise priests is what they really were. Of another religion, the wise men we call them, and the shepherds, but not once do you see a dragon, and that is exactly the image that is invoked by the Apostle John in Roman—I mean in, in Revelations 12—as he revisits the narrative of the manger scene. And there it is, a dragon. You heard it. And then he quotes Psalm 2 as being fulfilled not only in the birth of the Christ, but particularly in the life of Christ. And now the life of those who, in the shadow of Mother Mary, the Mother Church, what then the church ought to expect in the rebirth of her children, and how that rebirth would come about. It's an incredible thing. And it begs the question, why haven't we talked about this? Why haven't we had this perception of the birth of Christ? Especially when it concerns our expectations, not just about this holiday season, but our expectations about even the meaning of Christ's coming, and particularly how it would be that those who would follow him would experience his coming. T.S. Eliot is a great poet, probably one of the best, in my humble opinion, that ever lived, and he reflects on the nativity scene in this very inspired uh, poem, poem called The Journey of the Magi. Maybe you've read it. It is inspired as well by Revelations 12 and presumably Psalms 2. Here's the way his stanza ends, the last stanza of his psalm. There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence, and no doubt I had seen birth, but I have seen death. But had thought that there were different, this birth from this death, was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation. With an alien people clutching their gods, oh, I should be glad of another death. That is so incredible. I want you to keep that poem in your mind as we walk through this text. We'll return to it at the end. That we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Maybe a contrarian narrative, but true, as we consider the birth of Christ and the meaning of Christmas. Let's pray. So Father, come into our lives. Lord, we come here even today, anticipating such sweet and wonderful times together as family and friends. Oh Lord, I pray you'd grant that to all those who are here good things, to be sure, but for, Lord, forgive us where we have perhaps unintentionally not been willing to fully grasp the meaning of Christ and his coming, ways that we have suspiciously uh, ignored the context of that original nativity scene and what it means even for us today So, Father, I pray you'd come and give us a willingness for our eyes to be opened, that we might be transformed, that you might fulfill your glory in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So let's just get to the point. Psalms 2 makes a striking claim that in the face of great opposition and persecution and threat, God protects and makes flourish his kingdom, order. And he does this through the sending of an anointed one, a religious Messiah. That's the point. We could stop there. But oh, does it get dramatic. You see, this song of David has three voices and four movements. That is to say, it conveys this central theme through a complex, polyphonic, or multi-voiced kind of narrative. There are no less than three voices, the voice of God, the voice of the rulers of this earth, and the voice of God's anointed king, who in turn quotes God and speaks directly to all the rulers and the peoples of the nations with a great promise of hope and threat of terror. Let's pick up the movements in these three voices. Beginning in verses 1 through 3, movement 1, we have here, yes, in the imagery of the revelations, we have a dragon. We have the rage of the nations against God's anointed one being described. Herein, David, of course, is that anointed one, as we'll see, foreshadowing the Messiah. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, question mark? a strange thing how we want to proclaim the birth of Christ and we as christians somehow in this christendom meta narrative just assume it's good news for the world and everyone is going to receive it as good news quite the contrary what were we thinking when david the king was anointed As the great Savior King of Israel, the nations raged. From within and from without, he felt and suffered persecution all around. The same is true of Christ, wasn't it? The nations raged. Herod busily shopping out every young man to kill him. In order to distinguish this baby, John and his gospel describing how light came into the darkness, and the darkness, what? Rejected him. Why have we missed this? I, I, I know, we think of the gospel as good news, but isn't it strange that it's not always received as good in this world? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. The first movement describes a world in which God has established order through a divinely sponsored king and yet the entire world seems to think it's bad news. They're in an uproar. The kings of the earth plotting rebellion against God's rule. It's interesting how the text describes the world here, to be very careful about it. By God's, the world, he uses the Hebrew gohim, which is the word for the nations. And then he uses another word, amim, which is the word for all the peoples of the nations. It's total. It's holistic. It's populism. It's hierarchicalism all turned against the Christ, the anointed. The world schemes and plots. You ask, but pastor, where do I see Christ here, this anointed? This world is rebelling not against God, or only against God, but there is a direct relation between God and his authority and the anointed one. In verse 2, the word... In Hebrew, is Mishiach. Does it sound familiar? That's right. It's the word that is Anglicanized, Messiah. And again, the word anointed one, this Messiah, is translated in Christos. In the Greek, that is, the Christ. See, to be anointed... This is significant. is to have costly oil poured over one's head back in David's day that signified a change in status. No longer a person, you are now an office. There's a sense in which the, the, the person will decrease in order to live out and fulfill an office. By the way, just from an interpretive Point of view. This is why you have to be careful when you read the Psalms not to personify it so, or personalize it so much. When the king, anointed one, prays upon his enemies God's destruction, that is not David, the shepherd boy. That is the anointed one praying God's wrath against those who have assembled to destroy God. You see, the anointed one is God in the midst of us in this Davidic way of thinking about anointing. Given God's power, it's now residing in a unique way with the anointed one. And therefore, it should be no surprise that the fury of the nations is directed at the king as well. Now, there's huge implications for that. Where is the anointed one? Where is Christ in the midst of us? Except through his church. What will we expect? Who is this anointed in view here? Again, it's first level King David. But clearly King David as a foreshadowing or a type of the true and anointed one. Wherein it is said that his throne will be eternal versus temporal. At David's own anointing ceremony. In 1 Kings 2, we read, But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forever. It's reiterated just four verses later in the same scene. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. You know where that's going to be quoted? That's going to be quoted by Luke in his narrative of the coming of the Christ, in his birth narrative of Jesus. He says it this way, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Where did he get that? Psalm 2. You heard it read a minute ago. He's quoting Psalms 2. He will be that Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. This psalm, Psalm 2, is quoted in Acts 2.7, in Acts 13.33, Hebrews 1.5, Hebrews 5.5, Hebrews 2.8, Revelations 2, Revelations 12, Revelations 19. This is one of the most prominently quoted passages of Scripture to explain the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. Luke uses it strategically to introduce Jesus to the world. Isn't it strange that somehow this has escaped us? This song describing this scene of the coming of the Anointed One as a tumultuous, persecuting, furious, raging scene. Yeah, like a dragon. As a woman is in labor, as the mother of the anointed one is in labor, imagine that scene. And there in that room is a dragon slobbering over the bed, waiting for the baby to come that he might devour. her. Why has that escaped us? This is the point. Ultimately, it's related to the promise that God made about and to David at his anointing. It is the voice of the Messiah that comes through here. Listen to Acts 4. I'll read the whole passage. This is how the early apostles explained the nativity scene. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here he quotes Psalms 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27, interpretation directly from the apostles of our passage. Here it is. Verse 27. What does this mean? This psalm that I just quoted? Quote, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, your plan had predestined to take place. There's a negativity scene we have not seen or talked much about. That the kingdom of the Christ is here, described by the spirit of prophecy, And it's sufficiently attested to us by the apostles who seeing the ungodly conspiring against Christ and now his church are consoled, are consoled that what they were experiencing as the emissaries of Christ was indeed decreed by God at the very beginning. David prophesied concerning Christ, you see. He, the one who had received this incredible prophesying at his own anointing, all vindicated by his own life. He here in this psalm writes a song, and it is a song of prophesying regarding the coming of the Messiah. He knew well, he was self-aware that he held an office that was only in type compared to that one who would be forever, who would come, and whose greeting and reception would be the fury of the nations. That's movement one. We'll be able to move a little quicker now. The reaction. The reaction of God in verse four through six, and it says what? I think this might be the best little sentence in the whole of the Bible. I think I've said that about 100,000 times over the years of my preaching. There's so many of them, but let me just say it this time as well, okay? The the response of God to the fury of the nations, God laughed. (laughs) God, that is incredible. God laughed. From God's throne, it's described very carefully and meticulously, a throne that is from heaven, not earth. God laughs and then utters a statement of his own. There is one man in place, quote, my king on Zion, verse six. This one and only one represents God and confronts the strife of the whole world. And so the focus now turns from the wicked council chamber and raging tumult of man to the secret place of the majesty of the most high God. What does God say? He laughs. What will the king do unto the men who reject the only begotten son, the heir of all things? He will laugh. He will laugh at them. How do we interpret that laugh? What does it mean that he laughed? Clearly it's meant to be a kind of contrasting with all of this raging and all of this intensity, God is not concerned. God is not threatened. God's plan through the anointed one cannot and will not be thwarted. Now that preaches. That preaches. Notice the dignity of this omnipotent one and his contempt for the rage of the world. Notice how it is that that this one that is the most high, that, that he will reaffirm then, however your counsel's enraged, despite your malice, despite your tumultuous gatherings, despite the wisdom of your counsel and of this world, despite all of this, Quote, I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. What a grand decree and proclamation this is. I I am sovereign. I am unmoved. For truly in this city, They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan. Did you notice that? This is huge. The apostles got it right. They didn't miss it. God laughed, as in to say that the rage itself, even this whole world rage is under the hand of God. He remains in control. He is not threatened. This is verse 28 of chapter 4 of Acts is this little insert that describes the whole purpose of the Psalm 2 that the Apostles put in there because it makes it clear the meaning of God laughing is the meaning that God had predestined every bit of this. These raging lunatics They could not see in front of their face that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, has come. Well, they were all planned by God, decreed in a manner that would expose the light that is in the midst of the darkness. This is the manner and the modus operandi of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it not? History is filled with it. The church militant for Christ came under siege as well. So too is the church of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Movement three. Verse seven, and following the anointed one speaks, this third movement gives the Messiah now a voice. In verse seven, the psalm turns even more dramatically, you could say, the the climax almost is here, to this other person we have seen the council chamber of the wicked. We've now come, ascended into the throne room of God, and now we behold the anointed one declaring his rights of sovereignty with a great invitation and warning. This God has laughed at the council and the ravings of the wicked, and now Christ, the anointed himself, comes as a risen redeemer, and he declares to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. We, of course, will see this. Romans quotes this as well. And he describes it this way, how this Son of God declared his power according to the spirit of holiness. And where do we see that? By the resurrection from the dead. God laughs. And his ascension into heaven now where he rules. It's almost you can see the scene of the song, the anointed one looking into the faces of the rebellious kings and and the populous people, all raging. And he says, I will declare the decree. That's what he says. You decree nothing to the nations. It is I who make decrees. And that's the boom. That's where it comes down. Now this decree is directly in conflict with the device of humanity, Its tenor is the establishment of a very dominion against which the nations are impotent. There's an incredible thing that happens here. With this decree, he then says there in verse 8, so ask me. Oh man, this is just incredible. I'm, I'm being caught up into heaven as I'm even revisioning this thing. So this man, this, this sovereign one who decrees out of the sending of the laughing God says, you want to fix this problem? You've got to ask me. Now that comes off a little pompous in the way I, it, for, it, for a man like me to say that, doesn't it? But that's what's happening here. This is the sovereign decree maker. And what he's about to invite them to or warn them about they, we are contingent on Him alone. Remember what we said at the beginning? The Anointed One is God and His power and authority in the midst of us. How you relate to the Anointed One is how you relate to God. And so He says, Ask of me. And the first is an invitation. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces with a potter's vessel. Ask of me, and I will protect you. I will persevere you. Yes, they will rage against you too, but I will overcome. There will be trouble in this world for you Christians, those who would be followers of Christ, but ask me and see how you too will be vindicated. The world has nothing over me, in so many words. In Romans 5, again, this idea is invoked. It says they sang a new song. We're now in heaven, of course. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. That is, again, worthy are you for you alone are sovereign. You alone have the power. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they, these people who ask of Jesus, they shall reign on the earth. The raging nations that plotted against Christ, where are they in Romans and in Revelations 5? Oh, they are somewhere else. They've been displaced. You know that story. And then it turns to the following in the final movement there. Verse 10, the scene again changes, and the counsel is given to those who have taken counsel to rebel, and they are exhorted to submit to the anointed one, lest they be destroyed. This is where we hear the counsel. Be smart, people. (laughs) That's my paraphrase. Be smart. You want to know what smart is? Oh, there is a kind of smart, says the Apostle Paul, that is stupidity when it comes to the gospel. There's a kind of wisdom of this world that that rises up in its pompous humanistic knowledge and its knowledge of the world and its powers that we play with like little toys, you know, things like F-18s and and cannons and, and things like this and the great citadels and the great Towers of learning. You know, these are the toys that God laughs at in this psalm. Be smart. Be wise. Be wise now, therefore. Delay no longer, but let good reason weigh upon you is the plea of this narrator. For those who have now seen the true nativity of Christ, Your warfare cannot succeed. Therefore, desist and yield. Calvin says it this way, Oh, how wise, how infinitely wise is obedience and submission to Christ. And how dreadful is the folly of those who continue to be his enemies. It says, serve the Lord with fear. Let reverence and humility be mingled with your service. He is a great God, said Calvin, and ye are but puny creatures. Bend ye, therefore, in lowly worship, and be a final fear, mingled with all your obedience to the great Father of the great ages. Don't you love the invitation? How, then, should we receive the Christ? How should we respond to the great nativity? Being reminded that in this nativity scene was a great and furious dragon. We're to rejoice with trembling. That is so profound. The true Christian response to the coming of Christ is rejoicing with trembling. You see, you have this kind of holy fear. This is the God who laughs. He's so powerful. And there is this precious joy without fear. For he has promised to those who would kiss him, in the language of Psalms 2, to those who would embrace him, oh, we will be victorious with him. With great rejoicing. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the final word of the psalm. The great benediction. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 makes a striking claim. In the face of great opposition, persecution, and threat, God protects and makes flourish his kingdom order under the reign of the Messiah King, Jesus Christ. Let us take heed. Let us not forget, in so many words, the central theme of redemptive history. To be unreconciled with God is to be in a very, very, dangerous place. There is nothing so vital to your life and mine that we'd be reconciled to God. And the power and the authority both to curse and to bless has been handed to this one and only mediator between God and humanity, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. It is this message that we take to the world But oh, let's not be naive. We must never forget the nativity scene that has come to us this day. Revelations, let me say it again. There was a great sign. Remember, Revelations is trying to jolt a people suffering great persecution where the world seems so powerful and they seem so weak. So he gives them a sign. That is a vision from God in images and pictorial ways, the word of God now comes to us. These that came from heaven, according to this chapter 12. And here it is, that there is a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant. She was crying in birth pains. And there was great agony in giving birth and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, there was this great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, this all-impressive antichrist of power. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. The focus is on the woman and the dragon. How did that get lost on us? This woman clothed in sun, moon, 12 stars, crying out in birth pains. Who is this woman? Clearly it's Mary. Mary, the very mother of the anointed one. But it's also, as the church is historically understood, as it's here being described, it is Mary who is the first church of Jesus Christ. You'll see here then in the context that there's other offspring that are to come. She is going to give birth, and yet that birth would give rise to many more offspring. And this image goes on to describe how it is that this mother church... The anointed one as a corporate person of God is also included in this vision. And the woman, we're told, was saved by her fleeing to the wilderness, a place prepared by God in which she could be nourished. The promise that God will not forsake Mary or his church Even as though, what should we expect? Those who are lights in the midst of darkness, those who are standing corporately together as the anointed one of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit, well, they should expect exactly this. Those of Mary, who holds the crown of the 12 stars, i.e., obviously, the 12 apostles, the 12 Israel, how it was that she was crying, how it was that she was in great pain and agony in giving this birth, the birth of the nations that would kiss the anointed and be saved. It's a powerful story. It's almost as if, you know, the Marvel Universe stepped in to the images of revelations. It gets your attention, doesn't it? That's the point. So what do we take home with this? Well, three things, maybe four. Clearly, we should take that there is a kind of upside downness in the world. We had an interesting conversation last week in Sunday school, this collision of sorts that that happens when the when the church faithfully brings out the gospel in the world and and how this collision is more or less the same over and over again in Acts. Why did we miss it? What would we expect in the manner in which the world gets turned upside down by Christ? Well, you would expect stoning and beaten with rods, put in prisons, put on trial, thrown in arms way, harassed, mocked, or driven out, taken as a whole. <laughs> These reactions express narratively the fact that the good news doesn't always seem good. Why? Because it's a threat to the lordship of this world. It's a threat to the very false promise that is given to Adam and Eve to take upon themselves self-sovereignty. Of course, it's going to threaten the hegemonic relationship between church and culture. Of course, there are some, even in the church, as it was in Christ's day of Israel... That have enjoyed certain social privileges and benefits and economic relations with those who are in power in the world, by being good organization kids. by being those who would, you know, make sure the world likes me. But it just might be that to wear the 12 stride, the 12 crowns of the thrones of the Church of Jesus Christ, with Mary is to be faithful and not to judge unfaithfulness or faithfulness as necessarily good news to the power, the sovereign audience of populism or the sovereign audience of, and you just go into it, rationalism, humanism, you know, all off, off it goes. So what do we take from this? There's so much more we could say. But first of all, the consolation should be, don't be confused or surprised that Christianity isn't popular, even that we find ourselves not benefiting in a worldly sense by being a Christian. I've said it before, I believe deeply in my heart, it's going to get a lot worse. It's going to get a lot worse. Please remember what I said after I've died, those who are young. I really believe that. Now, that's my, me speaking. Things could turn. We don't know. I'm not God. But the trajectory that we are, more and more people are noticing it. Rights and privileges that the church just took for granted are being taken away. I wonder, will we be ready? Who will endure? How will the genuineness of our faith be proven according to Peter, who described us as aliens, decreed by God, aliens? His plan is that we'd be exiles. And how would we know that the, 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 the faith that we have is genuine? Well, he says it. So that the testing, tested genuineness of your faith, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the revelation comes through tribulation. That's where we're living right now. We will be vindicated. So first of all, we don't want to be confused or surprised. Often the world rages. And don't take that as a sign that you're not being faithful. Please remember that. Number two, we ought not to give the world such great power. One of you said that. I think I remember who it was. I mean, it's not as powerful as it looks. See the world through the lens of the Holy Scripture and a God who laughs. Do you believe in God? Really? This is a God of heaven, not of earth. This is the God creator not of creation. Do we believe that? If so, the consolation is that God lasts and all that he can do will not be thwarted. And finally, there is still yet the invitation. Be wise. Be wise. Be smart, really smart. Not according to the smarts of this world, maybe, that's in a rage against God and finding ways to compromise, but be smart. One, if you have not put yourself at the mercy of this God, please do so. This is your shot. Be wise. Put yourself at his mercy. Say, God, I'm gonna, it's going to feel like a leap, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to leap into your arms and say, God, let me kiss the Anointed One with my love and affection. Let me give to him my life and his ability to save me from my sins and rage. I put myself in his mercy, for he alone enjoys your vindication glory. That's just an old fashioned way of saying repent. Turn away from self. Sovereignty. And then live your life being faithful to Him as best you can. And He will take care of you. That is our consolation. That's the true meaning of this T.S. Eliot poem. It's incredible. He's wondering, is He not? There was a birth. Oh, we have evidence of it, he says, no doubt. I have seen it in his faith's eye. There is birth. But there was death. There was death when Jesus was born. And it hasn't stopped since this rage. There was death. I thought it was different, he said, this birth. But this birth was hard. This birth was bitter. There was agony for us. I mean, like the agony of dying to self. Dying to our own dreams. I don't know. Maybe I was in Rebellion when I was watching those Hollywood, I mean, those, those Walmart films. I don't know. Some of it was really kind of cool, actually. You know, the magic of Christmas. Oh, yeah, there's all this magic, and it's always, always romantic. And it saves orphans, and it does some beautiful things. That's true. Kind of? But let's not forget. He says we return to our place, these kingdoms. That is, once we've noticed the death of Christ, we, we go back into the world, don't we? But no longer at ease in that world, he says. In the old dispensation that is pre my experiencing the death, the birth of Christ, those who would receive what the Magi received, it's like we go back from his birth to the old dispensation. Nothing's really changed. There's still the rage. And with an alien people, notice how he ends, with an alien people now clutching their gods, I should be glad in another death. This world is not where our hope is. For those who receive Jesus, and this is one of the most Historic uses of Advent is not to remember his coming once. It's remembering that he's coming again. He ends with that Advent. I should be glad of another death, a death that leads to the resurrection. Amen.